The Old Time Review Show Podcast, brought to you by Southwaves Audio. Now here's your host, Jamie Dyer. I have a very special guest today. I'm very proud to say that we have Astrid King on the line to us via Skype, the daughter of famed actress and comedian Peg Lynch. And uh, I, I don't really know how to start this other than saying thank you very much for coming on today. And obviously, t- tell us a little bit about yourself first. Well, thank you for having me. About myself, what can I say? Uh, American, you can probably tell by my voice. Uh, born in New York, uh, very much a child of radio and television in, in New York. And then my background was in theater. Uh, my career was in theater. I worked as a uh, prop girl and set decorator for theater and then for CBS TV out of New York. When I met my uh, second husband, my current husband, Mr. Dennis King, who is a composer who writes music and he's English. And I ended up in England and I've been living here since 1980 and loving every second of it. Well, mostly. Yes, it can be a bit trying living in England sometimes. I'm not used to the weather to begin with, but uh, we're um, absolutely fine. <clears throat> Love it. And now I write. And now I write. So uh, by the time I'd left CBS in New York, I started writing. So that's what I do. And I promote shows about my mother. Well, of course, yes. And, and like I say, we shall get on to her in a moment because the subject that you've chosen to talk about today is early television, sort of 50s television, which she was heavily involved in Um, and certainly that era is very much a transition from radio a lot of radio shows going on to television tell us a little bit about your your mother and how she fits into that early television landscape well my mother uh, whose name is Peg Lynch and you mentioned her as an actress and comedian but actually she was also a writer and she was uh, in fact uh, the first woman to create write star in and very important own both her own radio and then television situation comedy series in fact many people call the woman who invented sitcom whether she did or not she was certainly in on the ground floor but she was a pioneer really she was a a groundbreaker she was a woman in a man's world um and actually compared to mrs mazel uh Compared to her, Mrs. Maisel had it easy. In my mother's lifetime, she wrote over 11,000 scripts alone. No team of writers, you know, just her. Um, and her creation, which started, um, uh, was called Ethel and Albert. That was a husband and wife situation comedy. And it became one of America's most popular comedies from the day it was first heard in 1938. And uh, it bloomed from a small town radio station in Minnesota to ABC in New York where it soon became, well, a a beloved corner of the nation's radio landscape. And then in in the next 75 years, really, after that, Ethel and Albert was heard or seen either on ABC, CBS, NBC, public broadcasting, radio or television, uh, sometimes called The Little Things in Life, sometimes called the, uh, The Couple Next Door, but always starring Ethel and Albert. And Peg, she starred in it, and she owned it. And because she owned it, this is possibly why many people these days have not have not heard of her because it was all in her cupboards, and most of which I didn't discover until after her death at the age of 98 in 2015. So, uh, so it's an awful lot of stuff to open a cupboard and well, 17 cupboards 
and fine. So I've got the kinescopes, I've got the scripts, I've got this, I've got that. So <clears throat> she was quite, quite a woman. Anyway, I grew up in the business around my mother, obviously, who, um, since she was on television and it was live television, which uh, I think a lot of people have a hard time getting their heads around that these days, but it's like doing a, a theater uh, performance every day. Uh, her, not every day, but uh, once a week. I think the way she worked it was she had, well, she went from eight years being on radio, then it sort of segued seamlessly onto television. She came, Ethel and Albert moved on to something called the Kate Smith Evening Hour, which was a huge variety show at the time, about 1950, mm, something like 1950. And she, Ethel and Albert, was a 10-minute segment. You know, TV was so early no, as my mother says, nobody really knew what they were doing. She would write it, and then she and her Albert, a wonderful actor named Alan Bunce, would rehearse it down at her apartment in Gramercy Park, and then have sort of a run-through with the crew, and then perform it. I mean, the lighting was terrible, the camera work was terrible, there was no prompt, no stage manager. Then she'd go home and get up the next day and start writing the next week's script and the next and the next and the next. So it was, you know, finally, finally when she sort of retired and uh, I said, I don't think writers ever stop writing. Why are you, what? She said, I'm tired. I'm tired. I've been doing this for 65 years. I'm tired. And, and once all that ended, she started doing the circuit of, old-time radio and television conventions around the state. So um, anyway, it's very difficult for me to fill my mother's, esteemed mother's shoes, but I am I am trying. So that's my background at any rate. It sounds like she left a lot of evidence of her work over those 65-plus years anyway. Well, she did because, uh, first of all, she was, uh, I'd like to say she was meticulous with her Things She wasn't, but she had the good fortune of throughout her career having her mother live with her and her mother was a nurse and her mother was a cook and a housekeeper and she ran the house. So really all my mother had to do was write and act and, and be the major bread. Well, my, my father was a chemical engineer. He wasn't in the business, but uh, she was the major breadwinner in the house. Which is not to say she wasn't always there for me. She was. I don't remember one school function that she wasn't right there. And, you know, she somehow made career and motherhood work early on. But she also had an aunt who was a trained bookkeeper, an accountant. And Helen lived with us. She kept the books and she handled the fan mail and all the accounts and this and that. So, and my father did the gardening. So really, my mother had it made. Uh, you know, I think of that now when I'm trying to work and I still have to think about dinner and I still have to think about the dry cleaners and the this and the garden and never mind. Don't don't get me started. Uh, but my mother had an apartment in New York. We lived in Stamford, Connecticut, which is about 40 minute train ride out. And my big tree, once my mother started on the half hour shows, which she got, NBC offered her a half hour on the strength of these 10 minute Kate Smiths, which were so popular. Um, I would be allowed, I'd be taken into New York with my grandmother and my aunt on the train, little white gloves, a hat, and I would be allowed to go see my mother's show being performed uh, live or on, on one of the major networks. In fact, 
I found a clip the other day of me actually in one of the shows as an extra in the train station. I looked at this little girl because I was going through them to label them. And I thought, isn't that funny? They've done that little girl's hair just the way they used to do mine. And then I thought, well, wait a minute. That woman with her, that, I think that's, that's my Aunt Helen. Oh, my gosh. That's me. <gasps> anyway, I was very sullen. I could have laughed a little more had I known I was on camera. But anyway, I think, yes, I, I do want to talk about television during the time. But even though I was very, very young, I hasten to add, the 50s were still... You know, television was still in its early days yet. It was black and white. It was Most of it was live. My mother had an offer to move her show to L.A. It was about the same time of I Love Lucy, and I'm sure your listeners will have heard of that one. But my mother chose to stay in New York. Uh, she didn't want me growing up in Hollywood was the reason she told me. There's probably other things. but So, so she stayed with live TV. Had she gone out there to L.A., it probably would have been, well, we would have been seeing reruns of it now. But anyway for whatever happened. Uh, she stayed in New York. And um, so I was very aware of television. I mean, as I got older, I couldn't wait for the September issue of the TV Guide to come out and all the new series. And I'd go through it, paid far more attention to that than my schoolwork, I'm sure. With my red pencils circling things I had to see, I kept a diary of the new shows and what I was going to watch. And I mostly watched I looked, I, you know, when I said I was going to do this, I had to think. as mostly comedy. I look back on it all. I mean, I, I, I didn't mind the family shows, the Aussie Harriet, Leave it to Beaver, Donna Reed. Uh, it was a bit syrupy. And maybe I didn't understand them because there were lots of brothers and sisters in them. And I'm an only child. So I, I, I thought it was sort of fun, but I didn't really identify with it. What I really liked were the comedians and comedians, mostly the women. I loved uh, the clowns. I loved I Married Joan. Now, I don't know if you remember that one, but my mother loathed it, by the way, because my mother was, her comedy was all about the little things in life that drive us mad and still do. That's why it's still so timely after, I don't know what, 75 years, it still works. But Joan Davis, who starred in I Married Joan, which was on from 52 to 55, she was sort of, it was manic, it was scatterbrained, broad, slapstick, and I adored her. I thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. She made stupid noises, and I think her daughter on it played her sister for a while, too, but Jim Backus played her husband. He was a sort of very reserved judge. He went on to voice Mr. Magoo, if you remember those. Anyway, I don't know what happened to Joan Davis after that show, but I absolutely adored it. The other one that I couldn't get enough of was this. I look back on it now and I think, really? I liked this? My Little Margie. Gail Storm. I think I liked her name. G-A-L-E. Gail Storm. I thought, ooh, that was clever. I wish my mother had named me something fun like that. And she played sort of a scatterbrained daughter of uh, a businessman named Charles Farrell. And I think he was a widower, and I think she was always trying to scotch his relationships or find the perfect. It was always full of mad capers. She then went on to do another show called Oh, Susanna, which was with the uh, character actress Zazu Pitts. She played the foil, the sort of the Ethel Mertz to the Lucille Ball. Uh, and Gail Storm was then a social director on a cruise ship. And I thought 
that would be about the best job ever in my life. And for about 15 years, I told everybody I was going to be a social director on a cruise I got older. Now the idea absolutely appalls me. But I have to tell you that years later, it was probably about, let's say, well, let's say my little Margie and O. Oh, Susanna, they are on 1951 to 55. And I was at an old-time radio and TV convention. I think it was an old-time radio convention outside of Boston, or maybe it was New Jersey, in, oh, let's say, 20 years ago, maybe 15. I was accompanying my mother, who was doing some of her sketches. And I said, who else is going to be on the show? So she named some people I never heard of. And she said, oh, and, uh, oh, you won't have heard of her. She was an actress. on. She used to be on TV called Gail Storm. I said, what? Gail Storm is coming? Gail, I'm going to meet Gail Storm. And my mother looked at me as if I was crazy. This time, you know, I'm in my 40s. And I've, 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 I've done nothing but meet famous people all my life. And then suddenly Gail Storm. And I, I can't see straight. And I met her. And I met her and she was this little, little thing. She was probably about 80 then. But honest to God, I got the impression she came up to my waist. And I was so mesmerized by actually touching my little Margie that I was glued myself to her for the entire two-day convention. She probably couldn't wait to get away from me. I'd like to think it was the most ex- one of the most exciting days in my entire life was actually meeting her. My mother just kept rolling her eyes. Um, um, let's see what else what else what else I also loved a show called Armis Brooks by the comedian starring the comedian Eve Arden Eve Arden I loved her in the movie she was this sort of sardonic eye rolling way she had and I thought she was just cool beyond belief and Gail Gordon was her uh, I think she was a teacher in a high school, and he was the head headmaster or principal. He then went on to star in the Lucy show uh, years later after I loved Lucy. But I don't know much more about that show other than I was absolutely uh, glued to it. And um, then, of course, you know, later on, there. well, I loved Jack Benny's show, Burns and Allen, obviously The Honeymooners, Life of Riley, uh, Topper with Leo G. Carroll. I can't remember any more of that, but there was there were a couple in it who died in an avalanche with their dog, was a big uh, sheepdog or something, and they came back as ghosts. Uh, that was very, very cool. Most of the time it was comedy. It was it was stuff that made me laugh. I think because, you know, my mother always said, you know, if you can't find something to laugh at in life, that might, you know, you might as well end it all now. She said, you can find something funny in everything, and just remember, keep your sense of humor. I think she illustrated that once by saying she got an award with Alan Bunce for the from the radio. It was comparable to the Radio Times over here, and it was for the radio uh, best comedy, best situation comedy of the year to Peg Lynch uh, and Alan Bunce. But uh, I think she had to go to the award ceremony, and she was given the certificate and then handed two gold little medals in boxes, one for her, one for Alan. Alan didn't go to the to the ceremony, and she happened to look at it in the cab on the way back, and they had misspelled it, and it said, you know, radio couple of the year, Peg Lunch and Alan Dunce, <laughs> and of course, she howled with laughter, 
But she said, well, I can't give it to Alan. He'll kill himself. He had no sense of humor about those things at all. So she, uh, when she got home, he said, well, did you get them? Did you get them? She said, would you believe I left them in the taxi? Well, I think you can't pause it. What? What? And so she had to call them up and get, get another one made for Alan. But she uh, treasured that her whole life because she thought, you know, keep your sense of humor, honey, because this is um, there's a lot to laugh at in life. And uh, it also keeps your head on your shoulders. But don't get too big for your britches was her other. Being famous, she said, it only gets you a table in a restaurant. So, so um, don't let it go to your head. <laughs> um, what was I going to say? The one other show that I loved that was not a comedy was a cowboy show. Actually, I watched a few of those if they were about, oh, my friend Flicka and maybe Sky King. That was a that was a that was an airplane a doctor or something. I don't know what he did. That wasn't cowboy. But the only cowboy show I was absolutely in love with something called The Texan, and it was starring this actor, tall, dark-haired actor, Rory Calhoun, and he rode around on this Palomino, one of those spotted horses. Is that a Palomino? No, that's called something, Appaloosa. I don't know what it is. Had spots on it. And um, I was absolutely glued to this show. Years, years, years later, my first husband, who is an actor named Frank Converse, who at the time I met him had a series on NBC about gypsy truck drivers, meaning they're not gypsies, meaning they're freelance, I think called Moving On with a wonderful actor named Claude Akins. I traveled with that show for the two years that it was on, and I got to see America, which was a bonus, really. I'd never, you know, you grow up in show business, and you know New York, you know Los Angeles, maybe you know Chicago. I knew Minnesota because my mother grew up there, but that's it. And you sort of forget about those areas in between, whereas those are really the most important areas because that's where you're, that's where your audience is, that's where your listeners are, and a lot of fans. So I discovered this when Moving On was shot for nine months a year all around the West and then the next year all around the South. And they would have a guest star every week come on the show. Now, it also opened my eyes to the fact that many of these guest stars were famous movie stars that... I sort of got the feeling they were um, delighted to finally have the work, even if it was on some stupid trucking show. I mean, there was Rayma Land one week, Janet Lee, Stella Stevens, Hugh O'Brien. And I thought, what a business this is in, right? You know, your flavor of the month. And then you just take work because, you know, whatever comes in. Anyway. They were all perfectly nice, as I recall, except possibly Raymond Land, but I won't go into that. Anyway, to my delight, in fact, I was almost as excited as I was meeting Gail Storm in later years, Rory Calhoun from The Texan was to be a guest on Moving On. And I could barely see straight the whole weekend leading up to the Monday when he would be on location. I think we were out in Arizona or somewhere. And... Um, we were sitting on the set, you know, they have the director's chairs with Frank Converse, and then they had one made for me, which is exciting, and then the guest. And he came in, and he sat down, and he said, hi, I'm Rory. And I said, 
hi, I'm, I'm Astrid. And I happened to be doing the local paper's crossword puzzle. Now, when you're not involved in a shoot on location, it's actually pretty boring after the first couple of weeks. So you bring stuff to do. You do needlepoint, you do crosswords and stuff. So I was sitting there and he leaned over, touching my shoulder. I thought, oh, this is so exciting. And he said, oh, now let's see. Uh, what's this now? Uh, five, you think I'm making this up? I swear this is the truth. He said, uh, five letters, uh, begins with H. You write it. That was the clue. It was the local paper. It was hardly the New York Times fair, right? And he said, hmm, what could that be? I thought, is he being funny? I turned him, looking for a wink or something, and he's staring at the paper, and he said, now let's see, five letters, hmm. And he kept going on about it. And finally I said, I think the answer is horse, don't you? And he said, great, yes, horse, fantastic. And I thought... What an idiot. All these years, I've been secretly in love with an idiot. <laughs> again, again, my uh, dreams were destroyed by Rory Calhoun. Uh, so what else would you like to know? What else would you like to know? What would you like me to talk about? Should I shut up now? <laughs> I'm bowled over by the stories here. It, it just, you seem to have a story for everything. Well, I, I won't tell you my age, but by now I... I I think there are quite a few stories for things. I don't. I don't know. I just um, one of the things I really remember when I was uh, growing up. Yes, it was exciting to go to my mother's shows, but what I secretly loved were the commercials. I, in fact, I think I knew even at age five. I didn't dare tell her that I preferred the commercials to her show, but they were done live, and I was. You know, if you think of commercials these days. They spend weeks and weeks and weeks shooting these things, right? And getting exactly, you know, picking up the box, right? And making sure the camera and this and that. Well, these were all done live. And I remember at the time, in this particular one, the sponsor was Ralston, the Ralston Purina Company. Now it's pretty much just, I think, the Purina, you know, where they make dog food or cereal. I don't know what they do. But they, this was cereal. And they had... Ralston, hot Ralston cereal. They had wheat checks, rice checks, all those. And they were promoted by an actor by the name of Lee Goodman. And Lee would come on in a stupid hat and uh, this and that. And he would have some little story about, I don't know, a whale. Or he would uh, have a little tune that he would sing. But it, during the course of the commercial, which was one minute, and he didn't have cue cards. I do remember being aware of that. He would put cereal into a bowl and put cream or milk on it and sugar and have to eat it and, you know, and get it right the first time. And then hold the box so that your hand is not covering the R on the Ralston or all that. Anyway, I was fascinated by uh, Lee Goodman. And one of the songs was um, that stuck in my mind. It was something for a Fourth of July parade. He sang, rah, rah, instant Ralston, yum, 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 at the end of it. And, of course, I sang that for the next two years, much to my mother's dismay. Anyway, again, cut to many, many, many years later. I was in Joe Allen's restaurant in New York one night, which is a theatrical restaurant. Now, they have one in London. They have one all over, the, I think, three or four all over the world. But this was the first. And Joe Allen started out by being, uh, it was a place where people in the theater could meet after work. It was a bar. It was a hamburger bar. 
and uh, the waiters were mostly out of work actors or between jobs. And all the posters on the walls were turkeys, meaning shows that closed overnight. Whereas in all the other ones, I noticed in the London one, they're all hits on the wall. There was something wonderful about seeing this room full of, you know, turkeys or things that bombed overnight. Anyway, I was coming out of the ladies' room and I heard a voice at another table and I turned and there was Lee Goodman from the Ralston Purina Company years later, but he looked exactly the same. And I went over to him and stood there. I said, excuse me, Mr. Goodman? And he looked up, he said, yes. And I said, yum, yum, instant Ralston, yum, 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 yum. And he uh, looked a little concerned. And I said, you used to do the commercials on my mother's show, Ethel and Albert? And he looked at me and he said, oh my gosh, Peg's little daughter. And he stood up and we hugged. And it was a great homecoming, a great reunion. And then I think to the amusement of everybody in the entire restaurant, we went through the entire catalog of commercials from the Ralston Purina Company, singing every, every commercial jingle that they ever wrote. So it's, um, it's a funny old small world. It, uh, uh, it seems to keep coming round and round again. You keep running into people who you never thought you would. And, of course, they're all dying now. But um, anyway, um, what else do you want to know? You mentioned to me that you did shows kind of celebrating your mother and as part of that you do reenactments and and things um how, how do you approach something like that very carefully stepping into my mother's shoes very carefully what i i'm i've got two things going at the moment one in the states and one over here uh there's a a, a writers festival locally up here in suffolk called the ink festival and for three years running now, they have asked me to do something of pegs. And I agreed to do it mostly because I wanted to see, A, did her comedy still hold up after all this time? And was it too American? Did any, Would anybody get it? Well, it turned into this raging success. You can't get a seat now. So on the strength of that, I'm going to be forming over here something called, well, it's just a working title at the moment, something like the Peg Lynch Players or the Peg Lynch Comedy Players. And we will do uh, personal appearances where we, there's a wonderful actor and comic named Tim Fitzhyam over here. He lives locally and he, he worked with me this year. And I have the actors do their own live sound effects as well. So that's quite fun for the audience to see. And it, it's, it's somewhere between a radio and a television broadcast because we, you know, you've got, you've got an audience watching you so you don't, you do facial expressions, in other words. You're not just sitting in a studio, just the two of you, right? Uh, and I had a cast of six, and they all want to be a part of it. So we're that's early days yet. We're going to start organizing that in June. But in the States, I've got this fantastic, um, he's sort of, well, he's a broadcaster and a writer, award-winning writer and broadcaster and journalist. He's with the Minneapolis Star Tribune. His name is James Lilacs, and he is uh, a huge fan of my mother's. And we have created a show that we sort of tailor to suit. It's either 45 minutes or we could do two hours. And we, um, it's sort of Peg Lynch in all her shapes and forms. We have clips, video clips of Peg telling hilarious stories and anecdotes. We do some of her live skits to bring the original scripts back to life. Plus, we have the actual vintage video from the so-called golden age of television, which really hasn't been seen by anybody other than family and friends for over 70 years. So... 
in the end, the hope is that audiences don't just leave laughing. They will learn something about a great star in American culture. So um, uh, she was one of the greats. So um, I hope people who see it will not be disappointed. It's been going well so far. So I'm going over in a couple of weeks to organize uh, shows for the for the autumn over there. Um, it's funny, though, because he said, James, um, my mother called me up one day. Oh, about 2012, she said, hi. I said, hi. Did I wake you? It's 3.30 in the morning, right? Because she never, in 30 years, she never got the time difference right. And uh, she lived in Massachusetts. And um, I said, yeah, but that's okay. What is it? She said, well, I just talked to a darling man from my, from Minnesota, you know, where I grew up. I said, yeah, I know. Well, he's just darling, and he's a journalist, and he wants to do a piece on me. I've invited him to the house. I said, when? She said, July. I said, what's his name? Um... Hang on a minute. I wrote it down somewhere. Hang on. So about 20 minutes later goes by, long distance phone. Well, I can't find it. Uh, but it was a flower. I said, a what? She said, it was a flower. I said, what, like Mr. Tulip? She said, no, 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 it wasn't Tulip. It was, um, so, you know, 37 flowers later, we move on to bushes. And I said, I'm on, by this time, on the, I'm on the floor of the bathroom, right, so I don't wake Dennis. And I said, lilacs? She said, Yes! lilacs but it's spelled differently I said right she said james james lilacs i said okay i said what do you know about him what does he work for who does he work for well i don't know i said mother it could be anybody you invite people to the house you don't know the strength of these people you know you're 92 years old um i, I I'll, I'll get back to you i'll figure this out so i googled him and i found his twitter account and i <laughs> tweeted said are you the James Lilacs who's going to go stay at my mother Peg Lynch's house in July? And he came back to me. Anyway, long story short, we arranged to meet there. So he uh, was about two months later. We met at my mother's in July. And he said he spent the last two months trying to figure out what he was going to say to her when he walked in, when she opened the door. And uh, she opened the door and he said, hi, I'm James. She said, I'm Peg. And he said, my favorite genius. So he had discovered her apparently by, he was a fan of old time radio and was listening to episodes of The Couple Next Door, which was about 1950, can't remember, 1957 to 60. And he said, my God, written by Peg Lynch and starring Peg Lynch, who is this Peg Lynch? So he Googled her, found the website that I had recently put together it's undergoing uh, refurbishment at the moment. We're putting more live video on it and all that. But anyway, he found the website, Googled her, found she lived in Massachusetts, um, found the number, and rang it very trepidatiously, thinking, you know, he's going to get some caregiver saying, oh, well, Miss Lynch is sleeping now. And the <laughs> phone rang. I said, hello? He said, oh, hello, I'm, I'm looking for Peg Lynch. Well, you found her. So that was the beginning of a beautiful friendship. So anyway, he and I have joined forces, and um, uh, it's great. It's absolutely great. It's uh, I never thought in a million years I would be doing this. And for I don't know how many years in the States, my mother would say, uh, you could play Ethel. Come on, let's get out some old scripts. I'll take you through it. I'll show you all my little tricks of the trade. And I would roll my eyes and say, why in a million years would I ever end up playing Ethel? I hope I didn't hurt her feelings. Probably did. But I thought it's ironic because 
here I am now. So before every show, I have a look upstairs. Well, I assume she's up there um, and say, here I am, mom, doing it again. Anyway, <laughs> so that's my life. <laughs> yeah, it's it's utterly fascinating. I mean, I, I personally found her work when I discovered old time radio nearly 10 years ago now. And again, I was amazed at kind of the ordinariness of it because the other comedies that you mentioned and around that time, things like Almis Brooks and stuff, you know, have a laugh track and, and, you know, a certain style about it. Whereas hers is very kind of, as you say, the little things in life, the ordinariness of it, which really, really appeals. And I think um, the idea of doing it in, in England as well, it really kind of suits our our way of thinking she was a confirmed anglophile and she always thought that um i think she chose the word the name ethel because she thought it sounded english uh but she loved all things english and i think she thought she was basing her style very much on the english comedy or way of looking at things uh i don't know i don't know i know she was heartbroken when Oh, about 1980, an actress named Dillis Lay, who was in all the old carry-ons, and an actor named Reginald Marsh got in touch with her, and they bought six of her Ethel and Alberts to recreate, anglicize, quote-unquote, for Granada Television. And they did, starring Michelle Detrice and other people I can't remember. And it was awful on every single level. My mother was so brought down by it. I said, don't worry, nobody's going to see it. It's going to come and go. You're not connected to it. Don't worry about it. But it was really just hideous. They should have left it alone. They overacted. They rewrote it. to. Oh, it's terrible. Anyway, anyway, they're dead now, so they, I can't get in trouble for saying that. Well, the, those sorts of um, transformations, you know, it doesn't really work. I mean, um, the way she wrote it was kind of how it was intended. Yes, Absolutely. And, and she based almost everything on real life. And it, it was a an eye-opener for her. Years, years ago, let's say 19, when she just started in 1938, and she was, oh, I don't have the information in front of me now, but she was the copywriter. She was, Ethel and Albert was created initially because she was selling farm machinery, tractors and manure spreaders. And she said, after you've done commercials to sell those, farm implements about 30 times, you get a little bored. So she said, I discovered it was easier if I put it in a husband and wife dialogue. And that's how they were born. And people started writing and saying, oh, I love that commercial. Oh, aren't they fun? So she got, you know, more work from that. But original scripts were very uh, slapstick. Not, no, not, not, not the wrong word. They were unbelievable. Ethel goes to a department store and the grand pianos are on sale, so she buys four. You know what I mean? It just it just happened. Um, and then somebody wrote to her one day. She did a script that wasn't about so-called nothing, a little something, and she got bags of fan mail from it. And she thought, ah, people want to identify, and that's that's what I'm going to do because that does that makes me laugh more than anything. And most, she got lots of ideas from fans. It almost always happened to, to somebody. I mean, she was very, it was hard to tell her a story because you saw the eyes and the brain start ticking and because she was already writing it up in her head. So you'd get about three sentences in, at least I would, and I'd say, are you listening? 
She said, yes, yes, go ahead, go ahead. The skunk got his head stuck in a mayonnaise jar, and then what? I said, no, you missed that last sentence because you were writing it in your head. So listen to it first and, and then write your script. But it's her mind, even to the age of 98, it was going a mile a minute. She was pretty together the whole time. Stunningly so, scarily so. But the other thing she did, too, was that she, if she used somebody's story as a base for something that happened in one of her shows, she would ring that fan, which, you know, they nearly fell over. And she said, this is Peg Lynch calling to, and calling Albuquerque or, or um, Idaho. Yes, yes. Well, I just wanted to tell you, you know, that story you told me about, um, you know, getting your husband's gum stuck on, chewing gum stuck on the back of his suit. Yes, yes. Well, I've used that in a script. And if you tune in tomorrow night, uh, you can hear it. Oh, 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 my gosh. Oh, Harold, it's Peg Lynch on the phone. You know, it was all that. So she enjoyed doing that. And as a result, people felt that they knew her. I mean, she, the bags and bags of fan mail was I think one time on radio CBS wanted to move her show let's say from 6.30 to 4.30 and 10,000 people wrote in overnight complaining that they wouldn't be home in time to hear it if they did that and she answered every single piece of mail personally as I said she had her aunt who might type up the, the form letter but she signed it and almost always tacked a note on and, you know, as a result, people felt they knew her. So, of course, we were always inundated with guests, people saying, I said, Mother, who, who are these people again? They're fans. They're fans from New Jersey. You remember? I said, no, no. And, oh, no, they're fans from so-and-so. And they were, oh, gosh. It was, uh, it was a three-ring circus at the house. Fortunately, it was a big house. It was fun. Well, it it sounds like um, it sounds like great times, and and I have to say I am in awe here just listening to these stories. I'm just blown away by uh, by what I'm hearing. You know, this wonderful stories. I'm literally I'm fanboying out here because, like I say, I I discovered um, her work a few years ago, and even we've even tried myself and my partner have tried to write in that style, and you just can't. It's a lot harder than you would imagine it being, oh, just write about nothing or write about everyday happenings. Sometimes you can't help but try and write it sort of sitcom-y or with a punchline or something like that. And it's like, no, you just need it to kind of flow. And she definitely had a mind for, you know, for that kind of ordinary dialogue. Well, I think what you have to remember, too, is that life conversations don't happen with punchlines. I mean, you know, you're having a conversation with your husband and, you know, every line is not a zinger. It just isn't. And again, it's what people identify with. They just talk like ordinary people. She always had a beginning. She had a middle and she had an end. She knew where she was going all the time. And then you can almost, she said they almost wrote themselves, which is something that we, of course, don't want to hear. (laughs) We want to hear that it was very hard, but they almost did write themselves, I think, by the end. And if she was a minute over or 20 seconds over, she could just take a red pencil. And to the second, she knew exactly if the producer said, you know, we need 40 seconds gone, da, 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 the red pencil, and they're on the air, and she did it. She always had a script on TV somewhere on the set, but she never used it. She was terrified of forgetting her lines, but she never did. I haven't forgotten mine so far. 
I had to cut one of her scripts down for this last uh, performance because it was too long for the slot that we were allotted. And I actually thought it would be much easier <laughs> than it was. The only thing that kept me going is she did on this uh, uh, her radio shows from ABC 1949 to 50. They were, she did over 1,340 she did of those. And then she did, I know, 32 of them that were half hours that the network insisted. She never liked the half hours. She always felt they were 15 minutes too long. This um, script I chose called Albert's Bear Joke, he's trying to tell a joke about a polar bear and he can't, everybody keeps interrupting, was half hour. So knowing that she thought it was too long made it easier for me to go through it and, and, and cut it down. Uh, but, you know, when she was writing and the door was closed to her room, it wouldn't have occurred to me to go in. Obviously, if I, my leg was broken or something happened, I'd, she would have come out. But I would never interrupt her. And I occasionally shoved little notes under the door. And um, she, would, she would answer them in time. But it was sacrosanct. I knew that what she was doing was really important. And you just didn't interrupt a writer at all. I wish my husband and son would learn that lesson here. In fact, the dog was watching at the door just a second ago. But... Um, she, my mother said the only person that interrupted her was her mother, you know, who never who never quite got show business through her head. She always thought my mother was lying if it wasn't absolutely. If she said there were 30 people there, my grandmother said, what, there weren't 30 at all. There were maybe 17. And Peg said, it doesn't matter, mother. It doesn't matter. It's better for the story. It doesn't matter. So my grandmother would there'd be a knock at the door. Peg's frantic to get a script done. And yes, mother, what is it? Do you want lamb chops or pork chops for dinner? Either, mother. Either's fine. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Uh, uh, decide. Uh, uh, lamb chops. Door shuts. Door opens again. The pork chops look better. Fine. I'll have the pork chops. Pork chops. Shut, door shut. Again. One or two. Two, mother. That would be fine. Just, you know, parents, right? I've, um, I've chatted for you, uh, I've probably chatted. Uh, I've outstayed my welcome here. Is how I feel. So no, it's 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 completely fine. I feel like I could go on for ages, but I realise that we have to we have to call it there. But I'd like to say thank you so much for for coming on today. It's been wonderful to be able to talk to you at last. This has been in the can for a while. Any time, Jamie. Any time. It's an absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. <laughs> Yes, indeed. And if people wanted to find out more, you mentioned there was a website for your mother. What's the address? Yes, it's peglynch.com. Very easy to remember. And there's a Facebook page for her called A Funny Woman. And that indeed is the name of my show for her. I think she'd like that. I think she'd approve. I'm just sorry I didn't do it all while she was still alive. Maybe I couldn't have. Maybe, maybe it took her dying for me to do this. Anyway, peglynch.com. See the videos, come see the show, um, and have a laugh. Well, I, for one, will certainly be checking that out. Thank you so much, Astrid, for coming on today. Good luck with it all. Thank you for talking to me. Thank you for listening to the Old Time Review Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. See you on the next podcast.